Depending on when you started this tour today, you may find that you're ready for a beer right about now. Well, nestled into the cobbled back streets of Vienna's old medieval center, you'll find the House of the Golden Dragon. The building itself dates back to the early 15th century, its earliest reference from 1406, when it was called das Haus unter dem Feilschnitzon, or the House of the Arrow Makers. Upon changing hands in 1566, the name was changed to the one it still bears today, and its namesake, the gilt dragon statue dating to the early 17th century, still graces its doorway, now under glass to protect it from the elements. Just to the left of the doorway, as well as painted on a decorative archway inside, you'll also see inscriptions referencing a man named Johann Steindl, who was supposedly gifted this property as a reward for heroic actions in the Second Turkish Siege. Historians dispute these claims, though. While Johann Steindl did exist, records indicate that he died in 1665, nearly 20 years prior to the battle. And during his life, it seems there's not much evidence that he ever received the honorary titles of city councilor or hospital director that are claimed here. What is clear, though, is that whoever Johann Steindl actually was, the efforts to embellish his legacy began early and were pretty effective. Both this facade and the street you're now standing in have borne his name since 1701. We also know that this is the oldest continually operating beer joint in town, and since 1923, its owner has been the Gösser Brewery, one of Austria's largest, based in the province of Styria. In case you want to take advantage of this opportunity to head inside, sit down, and order something to taste, I'll give you a rundown of some of their options now, a kind of primer on the basics of their beer menu so you can go ahead and order. Then I'll tell you a bit more about the historical significance of beer and beer making, so you've got something to listen to while you wait for your order to arrive. The Gösser Beer Clinic restaurant and tasting room offers a wide selection of their own brews on tap, as well as a number of other Styrian brands in the bottle. If you're having trouble deciding which to try, here are some Austrian beer basics to get you started. At the top of my list of recommendations is the Gösser Spezial a typical strong Austrian helles, or pale lager, offered on tap. I'll go into what makes lager particularly characteristic of this area in a minute. Suffice it to say for now that if you're interested in tasting the traditional product of a Germanic beer garden, this is the one for you. It has an intense, clear gold color and a balance of nutty, slightly fruity flavors with a light bitter hops aroma. This particular brew, the Spezial, received this distinction because it was the beer selected to toast the signing of the Austrian State Treaty in 1955, marking the end of Allied occupation and the re-establishment of Austrian independence. The commemorative 50th anniversary relaunch of this recipe in 2005 proved so popular that it's been kept in production since. The Gösser Stiftsbräu Dunkel is also a type of lager, but as you can see by the dark, or dunkel, color, the barley has been roasted longer. This results in a sweeter, more caramelized flavor, often described as smoky or similar to a dark roasted coffee. If both of these options sound good to you and you're having a hard time choosing between the sweeter roasted flavor of a dunkles and the crisper drinkability of a helles, like the Spezial, try a gemischtes. That means mixed, and it's half and half, like a black and tan. A zwickel takes its name from the word Zwickelhahn, a type of siphon that brewmasters used to employ for early tastings. Generally speaking, the longer the beer sits in the barrel, the clearer it becomes, since small particles of yeast and barley eventually sink to the bottom. 
what the brewmaster was pulling out with his Zwickelhahn was typically still cloudy, what we would refer to today as unfiltered, because since the late 19th century, this step of industrial production is done through filtration rather than giving the beer more time to rest. But there's a benefit in leaving the beer cloudy, namely, the finished product still contains all of the yeast proteins and natural B vitamins that are otherwise separated out in the interest of a clearer appearance and crisper mouthfeel. Here, the Zwickel is made from a mix of barley and wheat, and since it's warm fermented rather than cold fermented, it's actually an ale, not a lager. We'll get into that more in just a moment. In addition to their own Gösser brews, the Bierklinik also offers a few other options on tap that are produced by other breweries. First, the Reininghaus Pils. Also produced in Styria, this is a type of pale lager, similar to the Spezial, but slightly brighter, crisper, and clearer with a strong, fine-bubbled foam. Pils takes its name from the bohemian city Pulzen, where it was first developed early in the 19th century, contemporaneously with the industrialization of glass manufacturing. With lower glass prices, the general population could afford to buy glass drinking vessels, which meant that the majority of Europe's beer drinkers were now able to view their beverages while drinking them. This drove a new fashion in beer production that favored bright, clear, filtered pale lagers and is why the Pils, or Pilsner, is nearly synonymous with a specific type of tall, tapered beer glass. The slimmer build helps concentrate its milder flavors and aromas near your nose and mouth, and its tapered rim helps retain that fine, stiff foam. The Schladminger Merzen is also produced in Styria, in a region of the province renowned for its Dachstein Glacier. The term Merzen derives from an old peculiarity of the production process of this type of lager. In early 16th century Germany, brewery fires were a common danger, and laws set in Bavaria designed to prevent them prohibited any production of beer during the warmer summer months, from late April to late September, when the danger was particularly high. In order to ensure that they would still have beer to offer customers during the months when they weren't allowed to produce, breweries came up with a new recipe for a beer with a longer shelf life that could be brewed in March, März in German, and stored for months before being drunk. This generally meant either a higher content of hops, which have natural antibacterial properties, or a higher alcohol content, or both. This is the type of beer that would have historically been drunk in large quantities in late September to make room for the fresh batch once breweries were allowed to start producing again. As such, it was traditionally a Merzen that you'd find at Oktoberfest. With the Schladminger Märzen, you can expect a clear, bright, gold-colored lager with a balanced flavor of hops and malted barley. This one actually has a slightly lower alcohol content than the Spezial at 5.1% ABV versus the Spezial's 5.7. Finally, the last of the draft beers offered here at just 5% ABV, the Altbrunner Gold, produced by the Moravian brewery Starobruno in the typical style of a Czech lager. It's a light amber color with a stiff, fine head and a pronounced hops flavor. If you're more inclined to select from the Beer Clinic's list of bottled options, you'll find that it has a similar selection. A Märzen, a couple of lagers, and a Weizen beer. This is an unfiltered blend of malted wheat and barley. And if you're not a huge beer fan but want to tag along or want to minimize your alcohol consumption, consider ordering a Radler. There are two kinds. One appears on the menu, and it's like what we would call a shandy in English, half beer, half lemonade. The other option is what's called a sauerradler, 
half beer, half soda water, and is particularly good for hot days when you want to be able to drink twice the liquid but half the alcohol. On the list of bottled options, you'll also find a hard cider, as well as a non-alcoholic beer and gadla. Now, there are basically two sizes you can order. A kleines, or small, which is a third of a liter, about the size of a standard American beer bottle or can, or a großes, or large, which is a half a liter. Of course, if you've already got a favorite, the famous Maas, or one liter size, is a particularly photogenic option, but it has disappeared from this menu and may not be available anymore. Finally, once your drinks arrive, of course you'll want to clink glasses and say Prost. That's P-R-O-S-T, Prost, the German word for cheers. But when you do, there are a few things you want to be aware of. One, make sure you look the other person in the eye when you clink. Eye contact is important. Two, don't cross your arm over anyone else's arm in the process of clinking. And three, avoid clinking with water. They're all considered bad luck. Feel free to pause at this point to order. Once you've done so, if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about beer and how it's made, come on back. Or if you're ready for the next thing, of course you can skip ahead to your next stop at any point. By now, you may have a glass in your hand. Prost, if that's the case. And if you stuck around, it means you're interested in hearing a bit more about the history of beer, how it's made, and why it has survived as the oldest and most widely consumed alcoholic beverage in the world. So first, what is beer? The simple answer is that it's the drinkable product of steeping a starch, usually barley, in water, and then fermenting the resulting liquid with yeast. Humans have been doing this for around 10,000 years. Basically, as soon as we figured out how to domesticate and farm cereal grains, we began experimenting with turning them into alcohol. History's oldest surviving written texts, like the Code of Hammurabi and the Epic of Gilgamesh, dedicate passages to the production of beer. There's evidence it was used as a form of payment in ancient Iraq, and it was distributed as rations, five liters a day per person, to the builders of the Great Pyramids at Giza. The reason for beer's broad and enduring popularity is ultimately due to how safe it is to drink. As recently as the late 19th century, waterborne diseases like typhoid and cholera still posed a danger in Europe's metropolitan centers. Centuries before the development of modern germ theory, water was perceived as a vector for disease. Countless texts warned against the consumption of water, even bathing in water was avoided by medieval Europeans since it was believed that submerging the body would invite illness. But because the process of beer making necessitates boiling, the liquid is sterilized, and the ensuing development of alcohol through fermentation means that it's kept sterile, making it much safer to drink for everyone, including young children. Of course, there's a nutritional advantage as well. Historians suggest that beer may have accounted for as much as a third of the total caloric intake of the average European during the medieval period, with an estimated daily consumption of about eight pints, that's around four liters. Between the beer and the roughly two and a half pounds, that's over a kilo, of bread eaten every day, this typical diet consisted of around 80% cereal-based food. Of course, if you were better off, you would have been supplementing these carbs with meat. But this massive nutritional reliance on cereal crops really puts into perspective the severe consequences of crop failures, which happened with shocking frequency. And beer offered a bit of a safeguard against famine as well, since it's a way to preserve the caloric value of grain with a lower risk of spoilage. So until the industrial period, home brewing by women was the most common form of beer production. So common, in fact, that medieval domestic architecture typically included two crucial storage areas, 
a pantry from the French word pain, where bread was made and stored, and a buttery from the term butt, referring to a small barrel of alcoholic beverage where the beer was kept. Incidentally, this is also the origin of the term butler, the person responsible for provisioning, maintaining, and distributing the alcoholic contents of the buttery. The earliest large producers of beer were Europe's monks, who relied nearly exclusively on beer for sustenance during periods of strict fasting, such as Lent. And living in a community, they were able to apportion jobs that benefited the whole group to individuals who could perform them nearly full-time. This came with a few added benefits. For one thing, the monk put on brewery duty developed a deeper level of expertise, which enabled innovation. Monks were the first to introduce hops, various sanitation techniques, and the process of lagering, for instance. And with the resultant increase in production levels, monasteries could fulfill charitable duties by providing beer to pilgrims and the poor, and eventually generating income through beer sales. These were the earliest commercial breweries, emerging in Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries. So what does the procedure of making beer look like? The first step is malting, which involves maximizing the amount of sugar that you can get out of the grain you're using, essentially prompting a process that the seed undergoes naturally in the spring when it transforms its stored energy, starch, into the sugar that will fuel its growth. Basically, you want to approximate the conditions under which the grain will generate these sugars and sprout but stop that germination process before it uses up those sugars itself. Simply put, the grain is soaked in water and then spread out on the floor in an even layer in order to start it sprouting. It's raked regularly to manage its temperature and oxygen levels, and after about a week, it's dried and toasted. This is what gives beer its color. The longer the grain is toasted, the more caramelization it develops, and the darker the resulting beer will be. The last stage in the malting process is the separation of the seed from the roots that have sprouted. These are called the culms and are usually fed to livestock. And what results is a toasted grain called malt. Usually it's barley malt that goes into the production of beer, though it's possible to use any starchy grain. After malting, the sugar-rich grain is crushed into a grist and mixed with hot water to make a mash. This step releases the sugars, and the resultant liquid, strained and removed of its solids, is called wort. During the medieval period, especially in England, it was common practice to flavor the wort with herbs and honey, and then add something called ale balm, essentially a foam of bloomed active yeast, to start fermentation. It would then be transferred to barrels, or butts, and the yeast would transform the sugars in the wort into alcohol. The resultant beverage was called ale. Today we use the term almost interchangeably with the word beer, but in the medieval period these were two distinct beverages. Beer contained hops, the female flowers of a climbing vine that lends a bitter, floral flavor, acts as a stabilizing agent, and has an antibacterial effect, making the beer less prone to spoilage. Beer was more of a continental drink. It wasn't until about the 18th century that hopped beer made its way over to England, and the two words, ale and beer, began to be applied to the same beverage. Though these days, to further confuse matters, the term ale is usually used to refer to a type of beer, containing hops, that is produced using a warm fermentation method. This has to do with the type of yeast used and the way it's stored during the fermentation process. Yeast is essential to beer making. It's actually a type of wild fungus, a single-celled microorganism that lives everywhere around us, in our bodies, in the air, in the soil, 
even in the planet's most extreme environments. It feeds on sugars, and in this process generates two important byproducts, ethyl alcohol and carbon dioxide, the buzz and the bubbles in beer. After introducing yeast to the sugary wort, there are three standard methods of fermentation, warm, cool, and wild. Wild is pretty much exclusively used in a region near Brussels that has a very specific natural microflora. Basically, the brewery has its own special local strain of yeast native to that specific facility, and by cooling the wort in a massive open shallow pan, the brewmaster is exposing it to the wild yeast in the air. The resultant beers, called lambics, are typically stored in former sherry or port barrels for a relatively long fermentation. They tend to be quite hoppy to counteract the increased risk of spoilage that comes with this method, and it's quite common for fruit to be added for additional flavoring. But this is a pretty niche method that you don't really find outside of this region in Belgium. The vast majority of breweries around the world use the two other methods of fermentation, warm and cool. As I mentioned a moment ago, warm fermentation is the method used in producing what we now call ale and it involves using certain strains of yeast that are most active at warmer temperatures, between about 15 and 24 degrees Celsius, or about 60 and 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Sometimes this type of fermentation is called top cropping or top fermenting because a yeast foam or barm forms on the surface of the liquid when the yeast flocks are carried up by the CO2 they generate. The warmer temperature also means that the fermentation process is carried out faster, Usually, ales are ready to drink within about three weeks, and the secondary flavors and aromas produced by the yeast metabolizing at a higher temperature usually translates to slightly fruity notes in the finished product. These are the typical types of brews that you'd find on tap in an English pub, or, especially during the 19th century, heavily treated with hops to avoid spoilage and shipped in barrels all over the world, like an India Pale Ale or IPA. But here on the continent, a different method of fermentation was more common, using strains of yeast that are cold-tolerant and metabolize sugars more slowly. Beer would be placed in barrels and stored in cellars or caves and kept at a relatively constant temperature of between 0 and 10 degrees Celsius, or 32 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, for a much longer period, many weeks and months. In contrast to the warm or top fermenting process, yeast used in cold fermentation tends to settle to the bottom of the barrel, which is why it's also sometimes called bottom fermenting. And the resultant product draws its name from the longer period of cold storage. Lager comes from the German verb lagern, to store. Incidentally, if you've ever been to any of the traditional beer gardens of Austria and southern Germany, you've no doubt noticed the prevalence of chestnut trees. Breweries are surrounded by them. But they're not just there to provide patrons with some pleasant shade. Chestnuts were chosen by brewers for a number of other reasons. Namely, it's a species that provides quite a lot of shade, but has a comparatively shallow root system. This means that when it blooms in early May, it provides a crucial insulating canopy above the brewery, helping to mitigate the warmer temperatures of the summer and retain cooler temperatures in the cellars where the beer is stored. And because its roots spread mostly laterally, there's less danger of their doing damage to the cellar walls and ceiling. Plus, as added benefits, the chestnut is fast-growing, easily raised and transplanted from seeds, tolerant to a broad range of soils, produces an edible seed that can be roasted and sold to customers in the fall, 
and sends out bright white blooms at the same time of year when breweries would be opening for the summer, functioning as a sort of natural advertisement to draw crowds into the beer garden. If you want to experience the traditional beer garden firsthand and happen to be here between about mid-March and the end of October, I recommend checking out the Schweizer Haus, Vienna's oldest operating beer garten, tucked away under a verdant chestnut tree canopy in Vienna's Prater amusement park. The Schweizer Haus is a local legend for a couple of reasons. In addition to its characteristic ambiance, famous crispy pork knuckle, or stelze, and fresh spiral-cut beer radish, or rabi, the beer served there, original budvar, a Czech-style lager, is compressed using less CO2 than is typical. See, originally a beer's carbonation was solely a natural byproduct of the yeast. Most would be vented during fermentation to avoid explosions, but the CO2 produced during the final maturation stage, either in the barrel or in bottles, would remain dissolved in the beer and then dissipate as bubbles once it was opened and pressure was released. These days, though, most breweries add a bit of extra CO2 through a process called force carbonation, and most beer vendors will add CO2 to the keg in order to dispense it at a constant high pressure. By contrast, the boudoir dispensed at Schweizer Haus is kept as close as possible to the original levels produced naturally by the fermentation process. This lends it a rounder taste, since CO2 has a sour, bitter flavor, a notoriously stable head, and a more refreshing drinkability. In fact, it's said that the foam on the beer served at the Schweizer Haus is so stiff that back when Austria was still on the Schilling, you could take a two-groschen coin, basically the equivalent of a two-cent coin, and balance it on top without it sinking. Of course, the two-groschen coin was made nearly entirely out of aluminum, so it weighed less than a small paperclip, but still impressive. The locals also say that if you come to the Schweizer Haus and order a small beer, the waiter will tell you to come back when you're thirsty. Speaking of which, you may be ready for another round by now. So I'll end this episode with a couple of useful German phrases. First, the way to ask for a refill. Noch ein Bier, bitte. This just means another beer, please. And if you're feeling generous and want to treat your group, try the phrase, Diese Runde geht auf mich, or This Rounds on Me. Our next destination, Amhof, is one of the largest and oldest squares in Vienna's center, and it's just a short walk around the corner from here. So heading back down Steindelgasse in the direction we came, that's taking a right as you exit the Gösser Beer Clinic, you'll quickly come to a funky little intersection with three streets set back at odd angles. The middle one is the one you want to take. It's a bit confusing since both the middle one and the one on your left share the same name, but look for the massive curved stone facade with external ribbing and two little green roofed huts at its base. This is the rear end of a church that sits on the square where we're headed. So follow the alley as it curves around the back end of this church to your right. Keep the church on your left as you continue more or less straight along what is now called Schulhof and you should see a small archway at its far end. Going under that archway will land you at our next destination, Amhof Square. And if you get turned around in this confusing little area, wait for the sound of hooves and then follow the horse-drawn carriages. They come through here fairly regularly and usually take the same route we want to, past the church to Amhof. You'll know you're in the right spot once you see a stately array of facades surrounding a large open area with a monumental column at its center. 
I discuss a number of features around this historic square, so press play once you get there and feel free to explore.